Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Three people will tell me how the smart home will disrupt the housewares industry. All on today's Smart Home Show. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, this is Mike Wolf. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. It's been a while. I've said before that my podcasts are oftentimes chunky. That's not in, in the flavor way or in any sort of nutrients or bursts of sweetness or saltiness. It's really in the delivery schedule that I'm talking about. And so it's been a little while. I apologize about that. I've literally been on the road for, it seems like the past three weeks. And I'm, I'm going to stop making excuses now because I want to tell you about the episode because it's really good. We actually, uh, for this episode, have uh, the panel I had just done in Chicago. I, I got back. I was at the Housewares show, the big trade show, focusing on the Housewares industry. Uh, they had actually asked me to help them this year to really focus, help them better focus and define their programming around the future of the connected home, around the future of the kitchen. And part of that was doing the keynote panel entitled How Smart Home Will Disrupt the Housewares Industry. So I did that. I put it together. I think it's a really good panel. And so I wanted to bring it to you here. Joining me on the panel were three great points of view, three great perspectives. Nathan Smith, many of you know, is the CTO of Wink. Wink is obviously one of those fabled smart home companies, uh, starting first as part of Quirky and, and obviously going through some, some trough of disillusionment and then kind of emerging out on the other side. And so they're, they're an interesting company. Nathan's been there the whole time uh, as they kind of reemerge as one of the key smart home companies. Also on the panel was Carly Knobloch, the, the voice of the smart home for HGTV. Uh, also, the person I, I, helped, I basically teamed up with as we helped the, the housewares industry focus in on the smart home this year. And lastly, Chris Young. For those of you who don't know Chris, he is the CEO of Chef Steps, a cooking education company, but also a company that has, has its own piece of hardware called the Jewel. He does a connected sous vide machine. So it was a really good panel. I think you're going to enjoy it. We, we talked about a number of things, including new interfaces, voice interfaces, chatbots. We also talked about how new use cases will emerge for the smart home. We talked about the future of retail. I think you're going to like it. As always... If you want to listen to more Smart Home Shows, you can just look for us in your favorite podcast app. You can also find us at The Spoon. Go to thespoon.tech and go there and subscribe to our newsletter. It's a great newsletter. It comes once a week. I think you'll like it. I'd appreciate it. For those of you I saw at the Housewares Show, it's great to see people out there. I always enjoy traveling, uh, talking to people, listening to the podcast. is always fun. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. Let's get to the podcast. I want to thank the Housewares Association, uh, Home and Housewares, for having us out. I'm really excited about this topic. And putting together this panel, I started to think, how can we get as much different perspectives to really create a 360-degree view of some of the issues that I think retailers, appliance makers, and brands in the space are facing? Because I think it's a difficult space. And I think I have architected a great panel with some, some great expertise and points of view. We're going to let uh, them introduce themselves so you have a little context about where they're coming from. And I'll start to my immediate left with Chris Young. Chris. Hi. Uh, pleasure to be here. My name is Chris Young. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Chef Steps, a company based in Seattle, Washington, that makes the Jewel sous vide cooker, which is perhaps one of the best-selling, if not the best-selling, uh, fully connected sous vide tool for the home kitchen. Thanks, Chris. Carly? 
Um, <laughs> hi, uh, I'm Carly Noblock. I'm a smart home expert for the HGTV Smart Home, which is an annual dream home that they build and give away to a lucky winner. Um, and once a year, the dream home is a smart home, so I work with the build team on that. I'm a regular contributor on the Today Show, and I just generally talk about connected devices and smart home things for various different media outlets. Yeah. Hi, my name is Nathan Smith. I'm the founder and chief technical officer of Wink. Um, we have a connected platform that allows you to use all of your smart devices together in one app. So, you know, if you get home, you don't have to switch around for between five different apps to control everything. Uh, we have about 37 of the leading smart home brands in the uh, in the industry connected, and about 2.3 million devices uh, talking to our platform on a daily basis. Great. So as you can see, we have someone who comes at it from the culinary side, creates products. We have uh, Carly, who's a true expert, understands the consumer's perspective, and really speaks to that uh, and informs that point of view. And then Nathan's really been through these smart home battles. I mean, if you think about the smart home uh, over the past few years, we've really, what I would say, we've entered kind of a five years ago, like the modern smart home era, where we saw companies like Wink, companies like SmartThings, come to market with new connected products and try to sell them to consumers. And there's been varying degrees of success, I think we would all say. Um, so I want to start talking about that. You know, as an industry, you know, I spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley in the tech circles, and we keep telling consumers that they should have a smart home, but I'm not sure consumers realize they should have a smart, smart home. So how do we reconcile that? How do we square that circle? Nathan, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I don't think that anyone wakes up in the morning and says, oh, you know, I want to get my house connected or I want a smart home. I think that if anything, even the, you know, the terminology there is kind of scary. You know, I'm a programmer and, and I hate it when I hear like, oh, it's a smart TV or something. Like, oh, it's going to have a bunch of useless features. It's going to be really hard to use. You know, I want something simple, easy to use, something that I'm not going to have to, you know, think about on a daily basis. It's just going to drive value for me. And so that's, you know, I think the way that, that the industry is starting to shift is people are realizing that, you know, just saying something is smart is, is kind of meaningless or maybe even a bad thing. Whereas saying, hey, you know, did you know that you can actually do this thing that is going to be useful for you is the way to sort of get into consumers' hearts. You know, never come home to a cold house. You know, never come home to a dark house. I think that, uh, you know, as we wade into, you know, the, this era of, of more and more connectivity that's easier to build into products, we really need to examine those use cases and let that sort of drive our decision-making and our messaging around, you know, our products. Carly, you know, Nathan said, like, smart almost can, can, can become a bad word. Consumers, when they go to the store, it seems to me they're trying to find a solution to problem. I, mean, I was literally two days right before I left, I was sitting in my office, I heard water splashing in my, in my bathroom. I went in there, the, the little tube that goes in the toilet, it, it busted if I, had, if I was home, away from home, if I had a water sensor there, that would have been a real solution to a problem. So there are real problems we can solve. So instead of selling boxes of sensors, are we, shouldn't we be selling that? A solution to a problem? A hundred percent. I mean, I just replaced all of my smoke detectors with Nest Protect detectors because at three in the morning, I had to go down to my garage, get a ladder, get up on the ladder while this thing was screaming and, you know, knock it down and pull the battery out. I mean, we've all had that happen. And so that's when you say, okay, I've heard about this solution to this problem that I never want to endure again, and I go out and make an investment. And that's me, somebody who is looking at this stuff all the time. But when it comes to my own house, I'm looking for that compelling solution 
to a problem I have. Um, I'm looking for a, a manufacturer that has empathy for me in this thing that's a headache and, and is, is going to help me solve it, as opposed to a bunch of features and a bunch right. of connectivity for connectivity's sake. You know, we do a lot of surveys of, of both the industry side and the consumer side. And, you know, as I said, five years into the smart home revolution, evolution, people in this industry still say the number one problem is fragmentation. Uh, consumers are still confused about the technology. I do think that the, the kitchen has a little bit of a benefit because I think it's coming a little bit later. Um, so, Nathan, when you, or I mean, uh, uh, Chris, <laughs> Chris, uh, Chris uh, and I didn't even go out last night or drink or anything. <laughs> Chris, when you think about, you know, you're bringing the jewel that's a connected product, um, and you think about how we've struggled with a little, little bit with the smart home, is, do you worry a little bit about that, or do you, do you think that's not as much an issue for you from a fragmentation <clears throat> standpoint? Uh, short term, it's not an issue for us. Long term, it will absolutely be an issue. Uh, you know, when we set out to create a product, we didn't set out to create a, a, a smart device per se. Uh, we had a community at that time of a few million people around the world, and we're, you know, there was a very specific problem we were trying to help solve for them. We were trying to uh, make sous vide cooking a better experience for this community that was very passionate about it. The choices we made from a product standpoint about how we leverage technology were all decisions that allowed us to get closer to our customer, to understand where they were succeeding, where they were failing, how we could continually evolve the product to make it better. So from that standpoint, you know, it was a closed system, and so we were less concerned about fragmentation because our product stands on its own merits. However, what we have uh, definitely seen now that we, you know, have, have sort of broad adoption of our product, people want to use it in multiple ways. You know, in many ways, apps are likely to be obsolete in the next five years, and people will use a heterogeneous mix of services. You might be on Alexa, then you're on Facebook Messenger, then you're in the app, then you're on Google Home. The challenge is to make all of those experiences move uh, uh, seamless for the customer because they don't want to have to integrate that. We have the hard job of integrating that and making sure that if you you know, start by texting Jewel uh, what you want to cook and get the water heated on, on the way home and then you walk into the kitchen and you say, Alexa, ask Jewel uh, what it, you know, uh, when it will be done. Alexa needs to know what you had done earlier, and so there's a there's a there's an integration issue there where the fragmentation can create a lot of a lot of challenges. Um, so short term, not a problem. Longer term, if this stuff doesn't play nice together, it's going to be a real problem. So, for those of you who don't know who Alexa, and I think we're maybe at the point where most of society, a lot of people in America know what Alexa is. It's kind of this natural language user interface that comes via the Echo. Um, how many people have one? I have an Echo. How many people have one? So, yeah, a lot of people have one. We're all on a first name basis. Yeah, yeah, we're on a first time. name basis. Um, so, Nathan, you know, you were in, you were kind of in the trenches from 2013 on creating Wink as a smart home brand, and, and we were all kind of thinking a certain way. Um, and I, 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 I say, I don't think anyone predicted the Echo success. No one did. I don't think even Amazon did. It kind of changed the way the industry thinks a little bit about the smart home because it, what it did, I think, is creates created a, a, a kind of a unifying voice interface layer with all these things that otherwise you'd have to kind of make sure all the radios work together. Talk about how things changed when, when that happened. Yeah, I mean, Echo and Alexa definitely represent sort of like a revolution in, in what we're doing. Um, we were the first smart home platform to integrate with Alexa, and and almost overnight we we saw the effect of it. But it's it's sort of counterintuitive because it's not really that that... Alexa um, didn't make people worry about, you know, the protocols or anything like that. There were still those issues, and, and Alexa itself, you know, doesn't really 
um, do the heavy lifting for a lot of the you know the connections. But what what it does do that's so incredible is that it it offers a control surface for everyone in the house, regardless if they have the app installed, guests, you know, anyone that 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 is around it to get the full benefit of having connected products with no sort of technical overhead or, or burden. Um, so, you know, having your kids be able to say, you know, turn the lights on or turn the heat down, you know, having your guests be able to interact with that is great because then it becomes something where, you know, you, there's no sort of, um, there's no sort of on-ramp. And I think that that is what really got people excited is, okay, now we can use this stuff, you know, um, at my house, it was definitely the, the inflection point between like, you know, my wife being sort of, you know, interested in it, but, but not fully on board to her saying, okay, let's rip out those next five switches and, you know, replace them and get them hooked up. And I think that, uh, what's going to happen next is basically we're going to start seeing, you know, it, to Chris's point, be very important to consider those like shoulder cases where you need to transition to other control surfaces and how that handoff works, you know, things like passive interfaces and, and, um, you know, things like having control from your car, like those things interacting together are really what's going to, um, I think drive the next wave and experience on this because Alexa can't do everything. You know, you can't look on in, on your house in a hotel room from Alexa. And so, right. So, Carl, when you think about Alexa and how consumers have embraced it or not embraced it, I know my kids, it's in the kitchen. I think over half of uh, the Echoes are in the kitchen. Um, it seems like families who aren't technical can embrace it. Maybe that's part of the, the specialness of a, a natural language interface. Absolutely. So I think it definitely, I have the same, I had the same initial thought when Alexa showed up in my home where suddenly kids or guests or people who aren't necessarily tech savvy or who don't have the apps installed on their phone that would otherwise help you operate your smart home devices now can participate. There's also just a delight that comes from this product. Um, I feel like when the Nest thermostat came out, there was just such a delight about using it and experiencing it for the first time. And there are, those products are sort of few and far between, but the, it has that Apple-like quality where it's just kind of exciting and fun to use. So Let's just I, be clear. This is a thermostat you were delighted by. I was. I was <laughs> delighted by it. I, th I think it was sort of, um, you know, uh, the first smart home device that right. captured a lot of people's attention because of the way it was designed and because of the compelling story about uh, finally having some transparency with your energy use in the house. But the design of it, I think, um, has this intangible pull to people. Um, and I think Alexa and just the idea of being able to operate things with your voice in your home is the same thing. I also think, too, that we've quickly become a people who didn't used to be able to remotely operate our homes to people who are really sick and tired of looking at their phones all the time. And so it, yeah. it's sort of like it, it went from, you know, this doesn't exist to very quickly like, oh, you know, I got to pull my phone out again and do a thing that I couldn't even do just a few short years ago. So now we've, we've been liberated from our phones by having voice control. We don't have to go find it and unlock it and launch the app and tap the button. It feels a little bit less of a burden, which yeah. I think is helpful. And, you know, I shared some of this data yesterday in my talk. We're seeing um, exponential growth, right? In Amazon Skills, if you don't know what an Amazon Skill is, it's basically an app for voice. Um, I think Amazon has created fairly 
uh, easy and democratized tools for people to create. I, I know podcasters who have created their own Amazon skill to get their podcast on Amazon Alexa. Like it's that easy. Um, Chris, you know, you, you, you've created a skill for, uh, the jewel. You've also created, um, I, I, I like saying this is still somewhat novel. I cook my steak with Facebook. I actually can say that and people go, what are you talking about? I did it on, on Chris's jewel. They have this integration with Facebook Messenger where you actually can do a conversation through Facebook Messenger, say, jewel, I want to cook steak. What I liked about it was it was, as opposed to Alexa, which I, I like, it's a visual uh, interface. There is visually rich information that you sometimes can benefit from when you're in the cooking space. Uh, it showed me the difference in doneness and steak. So, uh, so talk a little bit about that. Why you just, why you decided to go down that path? Um, sure. Uh, I, I think this is this is something inside the company we we sort of thematically group is something we call conversational cooking. The the thinking behind it is that you know in many ways. While our device was first launched as a, as a fully app-controlled device, in fact, that is exclusively the way to, uh, to, to control it. There's no on-device on controls. You know, apps in many ways are analogous to, like, VCR remotes in, like, the 80s. Um, lots of features. And the problem is, as you start trying to solve more cases and more scenarios for different segments of users, you start adding a lot of uh, clutter and heft to the app that can become very intimidating from, uh, uh, from an average user's experience. We sort of took the view that, like, that's lame, and we don't want to go down that future. And in, in the kitchen, what we recognize is, like, we've been using apps for less than 10 years. And my prediction is in 10 years, we won't be using them. Like, finger gestures and stuff like that is a, is a relatively non-intuitive, non-human experience. But we've been using language for over 10,000 years. And once you make the shift to conversing with devices is as easy and perfect as conversing with another human, that's likely to be a very stable means of, of interacting with a device. So that was our reasoning for first and foremost going with Echo because when your hands are covered in goo, you know, being able to say, you know, stop the cooking, start the cooking, set a timer, all of those kind of things is really useful. But following that out, we recognize there are scenarios where being able to show the customer bits of visual information is also really helpful. And we sort of look at things like Facebook Messenger as these really rich interfaces for conversational experience that have billions of, of people on them already. So rather than investing in constantly uh, evolving the app, we think there's more value in investing in chatbots and Messenger because there's going to be uh, countries that we go into like China where everybody's on WeChat. We need to think about what the experience is going to be like from a conversational standpoint. But you get in some really weird uh, design situations because you start saying, like, well, should Jewel have, like, if Jewel's responding to the person, should it have a personality? Should their Jewel's personality be different than somebody else's Jewel's personality? Those get to be pretty fun, but we actually find that getting that right is really important to getting the engagement right. So, Nathan, I'd love to hear your thoughts around what Chris contends. Are we moving away from a world where, you know, gosh, it just seems like I just got used to apps and pushing the touchscreen. And swiping, are we moving away from that? Is, is voice uh, getting to the point? Because I actually like physical, like, I like touchscreens. I actually like physical dials still. So I make an argument for, for physical interface, which I don't think you're arguing the physical interface is no. going away. But what do you think about this idea of like apps maybe going the way of the, uh, <laughs> of the horse and buggy? Yeah, I mean, I think that they're going to continue to serve a purpose, but as far as being the primary interface for a lot of things, I totally agree. You know, our mantra within Wink is use Wink more, but use the app less, because we agree, like, uh, unlocking the phone and finding the app and finding the, you know, thing you want to operate is, is it's clunky. It's not necessarily better than, you know, hitting the switch on the wall, but voice certainly can be. 
And I think voices is essentially one of many interfaces that are going to have to fit together to give people like this like fully rich experience that that's seamless for um, controlling these these types of devices. But as Chris alluded to, I mean, there's so many challenges to to that. Like the the personality thing like raises you know all of these questions, you know, ethical questions even mm-hmm. like like about how to. Um, you know, how you design these things so that, for instance, your kids, like, don't feel like this is an actual person or, you know, on the opposite side of that, you know, that they don't feel like it's a machine that they can just, like, order around, which might, you know, create sort of patterns that that you don't want. And so I think that it's going to take a long time to... um, to progress to that point where we really have everything working together. It's going to take a lot of iteration, but we have to be thinking about that future because... People, I mean, there's Nielsen research out there that shows that people only use about 26 apps. They might have about 100 installed, but as far as, like, the day-to-day usage, yeah. you know, 26 is, is the number. It's not really going up. And so, you know, if you're not one of those apps that's getting the daily engagement, you got to think about other ways to, to, you know, find your way into that. You know, maybe the... Uh, automated dog feeder or whatever doesn't need to have like its own discrete app maybe there's other ways that that can work yeah, yeah i do think uh this chris i didn't mean to interrupt you the idea of like texting or like a, a messenger as a unified interface can relieve some of that app exhaustion i, I will i do want to say I, I have been guilty of yelling at alexa so are you telling me that like this is forming certain behavior patterns for me for <laughs> the uh, the robot rising will remember michael um <laughs> actually just adding on to that point that um you know, getting an app installed like in 2007 was easy because there were only, you know, a few thousands of apps. Uh, you know, fast forward today and, you know, for most companies doing apps, like you're paying for installs, it's really, really a slog. And dis- so discovery cost is extremely high and then getting repeat engagement is a, a big challenge. It's going to be way worse for voice because uh, at least when you're going through your phone, oh, you see the little tile that reminds you you've got this app and maybe I should use it. With voice, you're only going to, like, the way Alexa works is it's, you know, Alexa ask, insert the skill name here to do something. You're going to actually, there's no visual reminder that you have a skill installed. And so if it doesn't become a repeat behavior where you use that skill so frequently it becomes top of mind, that skill's never going to get used. And so at the end result, uh, there's going to be very, very few skills that get so much frequency of use that they become top of mind and everybody uses it. So there'll be a complete land rush for getting your skill installed and getting people to use it enough to remember that that invocation word. Otherwise, like you'll get a bunch of people to install the skill, they'll try it once and they'll forget about it and it will be a wasteland. Um, and Amazon will go, thank you very much for teaching us that this was a valuable thing. We'll just ingest yeah. that all into Alexa now. Well, we get to the point where we actually have to have skills you know, like you get the annoying notifications on your phone. Hey, I'm your front door. You haven't turned me off or you haven't locked me. Are we going to get like Alexa going, hey, you haven't used this skill for a while? Um, or is that like an invasion of our privacy? I, oh, would that be an invasion of our privacy? I, I, sorry. Well, Chris, I mean, we, we have so many invasions of our privacy. Yeah. I can't imagine why there wouldn't be just one more. Um, I mean, it, you know, it would just be another kind of notification, uh, another kind of reminder, like, hey, your game misses you. You know, you get yeah. those all the time. So I can't imagine that there wouldn't be ways for companies to try to remind you to use 
the Alexa skills. I mean, right now I find the Alexa skills to be very clunky. Um, they're hard to, uh, some, some of them are, are difficult to install. They require you to sign up for a separate account from a separate site and then you have yep. to remember the precise command and there's several commands per skill and it's just a little bit nonsensical right now, but the germ of the idea is there and, and really powerful. Um, but I think that whether it's voice or whether it's a Facebook Messenger app, it's catering to, um, to your point, this high level of customization that we all expect now from technology. I don't want to look at 150,000 recipes that I don't want to cook. I want to get right to the one that I do want to cook. So if I can messenger Facebook or messenger Jewel and say, hey, I want to cook a steak. It's this piece of meat. Tell me what to do instead of having to scroll and search and find and 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 browse. Um, I think that's just sort of the next level of helping people have more efficiency in the kitchen and, and I think it's what consumers are going to start demanding. I want to talk a little bit about uh, retail. I've, I've been talking to some retail buyers out there and I, I get the sense that one of the challenges, uh, and I watch retail very closely around Smartum, one of the challenges is how do we move to this world where we're selling devices that it's really hard to tell the story about on a, on a retail shelf. You go to, I don't want to pick on anyone, but I'll pick on Best Buy. So you go to Best Buy, <laughs> the whole, you just, you know, you even remember CompUSA, you just have miles and miles of SKUs. <laughs> and that worked when it was just mice and keyboards, because you pretty much know what a keyboard's going to do. But if it's a jewel, or if it's some, you know, it's, it's a wink, and you have this thing where there's a root, you know, like this just triggers that, triggers that. It's really hard to tell that story. So I'd love to kind of talk to you guys a little bit about how retailers can think about maybe Better telling the stories around the future, these future connected products. So, you know, Nathan, you you've you've been in the battle for a while. Have you learned any lessons about some who some retailers are doing it right and telling the story right? Yeah, I mean, retail is always challenged with new technology. When you know, before there were rows and rows of mice and keyboard, it was a different story. You know, people didn't didn't you know fun didn't intuitively knew, know what those devices did when they started selling PCs back in the 80s you couldn't just sell them you know on like a long you know 20 foot like aisle they basically sold PCs as hey here's a better typewriter the reality of it is it's this computer that can do anything and it's you know a revolution but the the retail messaging and the and the media, and the marketing messaging was it's a typewriter that you know you can uh, correct errors without having to use whiteout and you know Go back in the uh, you know roll the paper back, and I think that that's where we are in this space right now, which is that uh, you have to essentially be communicating you know what this is replacing, what this can do for your life that's better than you know your previous solution. Like why is this better than your like connect your you know traditional alarm system? Why is this better than your your traditional light bulb? And uh, you know as far as as far as retailers that do that very well, I mean gotta say Home Depot like we've been working with them for a long time and and over the course of that we've we've learned a ton together about um, how to merchandise this going from you know lots of different diagrams with little dotted lines connecting all the devices together which is sort of scary for a consumer <laughs> to you know more talking about that that use case based um, that use case based message and and I think Amazon does a, a great job of this as well. You know, they allow you to um, sort of explore what products work together. And, and again, they really talk about okay, 
like, I mean, I'm sure the people that have Alexa have gotten the emails every every week that sort of say, here's what Alexa can do now, and they give you examples and, and sort of real-life use cases um, as opposed to just being, you know, a list of the innumerable, you know, certain new skills that are that are available. So it sounds a little bit like storytelling and not like just telling about talking about speeds and fees. I think in the technology industry, we just want to say, oh, this seems fast. It has Zigbee, Bluetooth, and consumers could care less about that. Um, and that's, I think, partially why, like, you know, the Comcast of the world, when they sold their smart home service, is in the context of security, because people understand, oh, it's security, I get it, it's smart security. Um, you know, Carly, when you, you started working with HDTV, I think they've evolved a little bit in terms of how they think about and talk about smart home. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, have you seen, uh, is, is the audience getting more sophisticated? Do you have to, can you cut to the chase a little quicker now? In some ways, yes. Uh, because I just think it's it has become more part of the collective consciousness over the last five years or so. Um, in some ways, it still really comes back to what we talked about at the very top of the hour where people aren't looking for a smart home. It's entertaining to watch and it's cool to see, but when they think of their own house, they're thinking about, can I afford this stuff? Do I have any idea how to install it, maintain it, uh, keep my home secure? from it. So, you know, I'm, I'm installing the lock, but is my home going to be less secure because it's vulnerable to hacking? Or, it, it, you know, what information is being collected about me from this lock and sent to the company that makes it? So, uh, you know, and if I don't know the answers to those questions, I'm not going to put it in my house. I understand how a regular lock works. Um, you know, and I, as I was thinking about, um, as you were, as you were speaking, my conundrum a lot happens on Instagram, you know, and this is a weird tangential story, but if I put a cupcake up on Instagram, everybody understands what that is. If I put a, you know, a, a wearable that helps you manage your stress level on Instagram, I have to write a whole caption to explain yeah, yeah. people what they're looking at. And so when it comes to packaging and merchandise and, and a whole new vertical for mm-hmm. most people of how to cook or um, a product that can do hundreds of different things in your home, that's tough to put on a box or in a caption on Instagram. Um, it's definitely tough for people in their busy lives as they're breezing through Best Buy to really grok that and understand and figure out whether it's relevant to them. So it is true that security is a pain point for people. Energy efficiency is right up there, according to surveys um, that uh, Coldwell Banker has done. Um, and Scripps Networks, who uh, run HGTV, have done. Uh, so those stories seem to be the ones that consumers are grabbing onto, and then they're backing their way into other smart things once they have success with those you know, small pieces of smart home. You know, I, I make the contention, uh, I tell some, some of the appliance companies I talk to, that they have to become content companies. You know, it's no longer sufficient just to put a, something in a box, buy some advertising time, um, and they, they have to kind of tell a story. They have to build a community. You know, in a way, Chris, I think you're kind of a forward-leaning company in that respect. You kind of came at it. For those of you who don't know about Chef Steps, they actually are a content community first. People go there to learn how to cook steak or whatever. And then they started to get, in, get into hardware. So you kind of came at it from a different way. I think this also can apply to retailers a little bit. You know, they have to kind of tell stories, become content companies. Is that how we move forward to kind of show people how to move into the future faster? Um, yes, but it's not something you just bolt on. Um, yeah. As you alluded to, you know, when we founded the company, the first thing we did was just start cooking and putting content on YouTube because 
you know, in 2012, you could build a global audience of customers with very low friction just by doing stuff that was interesting. And if nobody showed up, we figured then we were wasting our time. But, you know, we started first and foremost of saying we build content to serve our community, and then we listen to them and say, what do they want from us? What other problems can we solve? And we started out with content, but that actually led towards we saw the limits of the content, but we were abandoning our community in their kitchens where... You know, they had this content showing them the awesome things they could do, and then, like, the tools in their kitchen would totally let them down. Hence, we're like, okay, well, we need to make our own tools for continuity of experience. Now we're looking at retail, and we see sort of the same challenges of, you know, how do we continue to serve our community if we're in a Best Buy, if we're in a Target, if we're in a Crate and Barrel? And it's a real challenge because you don't have great tools to get that story across. Um, and just putting some, some stuff on the shelf and hoping it will sell is just lame and a waste of everybody's time and really expensive. So, you know, we're very... By the way, one of the worries I had about Chris is he never has strong opinions. Many things are lame. Many things are lame. That's true. And, and so, but retail is really important. You know, in, in the perfect world... We want customers to be able to experience our product by actually eating something sous vide. And, and we, so we put a lot of importance on uh, working with our existing customers to help find new ones. But we do know that we have to go into retail. And so we're actively experimenting with how do we tell the story of sous vide cooking. Not the story of Jewel, but the story of sous vide and why this is going to make your life and your meals like way more awesome. There's all sorts of things. I mean, Stuff we're experimenting with, we built chatbots that just basically fill in the gaps of where retailers can't tell the story so that the customer can ask questions and get a much richer narrative experience right there in a Best Buy to see, like, what does this do? How does it work? Why should I, why should I care about this? Um, I expect as we do more of that, we're going to learn a lot more, but it's, it's really heavy lifting. And the biggest challenge right now is, you know, how do you at least, like, you don't want to be doing the same thing in physical retailing that you can do on Amazon, because, like, Amazon will just win at that. Amazon's great for online selling. Right, right. People know what they want and do a search. Amazon's fantastic. The opportunity with physical retailing is to be able to tell a richer story, to be allow, allowing the potential customer to experience the product at some level. The challenge is not too many retailers are really stepping up to fulfill that, that promise, and so that's something, you know, we're pretty committed to working on, but it's hard. Um, but I don't. I think you have to solve it. I do want to say, do you have, so real quick, before Carl starts, we are going to have Q and A. I'm going to try and leave ten to fifteen minutes at the end. Um, so I will give you. Start thinking about questions. You have questions for these guys. I'll give you a little bit of a heads up before we go to questions, so we can start winding up at those microphones. Carly, go. I just wanted to add on to that really quick to say that my personal experience with sous vide, you know, really came from when they started to become connected devices. So only over the last couple of years, and I'm more steeped in all of this technology stuff than the average person maybe who reads a blog or sees me on television. But I'm always trying to look at it through that lens. So I went to the internet, started looking around, saw a lot of very complex, you know, really fun, food nerdy, food hobbyist stuff. And I thought, well, this isn't really for me and it's not really for my audience. And so I think that's why. And you and you guys now that I know your company better and I see all the different kinds of content that you create it's a little bit of a different experience, but I think that's why content is so critical. And you know, so many brands hire me to help them tell their story to a market that doesn't really care about technology. And probably many of you feel the same way, where it's like, I don't really care about technology. If somebody can explain to me why technology 
can solve a problem for me, now I'm interested. But technology, just connected devices for the sake of connected devices, and maybe that's how you feel about some of your customers, and so you're looking at this whole vertical with like a little bit of side eye, and I, you know, and I, I do that too all the time. So I, I think it's like, that's why content is so important, so that you can see the story told from the perspective of the busy housewife, or the perspective of the single guy, or the perspective of the, the newbie chef versus the really passionate hobby chef. So um, I think that's really the opportunity for brands. So Carly, you're talking about how you were online, and you and we were talking beforehand, we were having a little conversation over here at Sidebar, and uh, you talked about how you went down the, the hard-boiled egg, or the egg path, and, and so Chris, Chris talked about, we, we, we know what our customers are doing, and they, some of them start with egg, some of them start with steak, and then we, we know from there where they're going because we watch the data. One of the things I want to talk about is, you know, what are some of the value-added benefits of connected products? Because I think sometimes it's like, add Wi-Fi, do an app, and you have remote notifications, and then you're done. It's a, you go home, you're done. I think that's the starting point, and some of these data insights that you talked about, Chris, uh, I think are some of the value you get from a connected product, at least if you're a manufacturer. Talk about some of the things you learned, and then Nathan, I want to talk to you about that as well. I mean, so from the get-go, the reason we put such a premium on making the device connected was our view was this was a great way to be able to listen to our customer and continually make the product better for them. And so that's something that really is foundational to every aspect of how we run the company. You know, telemetry data comes back on every unit that's ever been deployed that feeds back daily into our manufacturing line so that we're always tuning and improving the reliability of our product. And that's, you know, that's been massively valuable for us. It also goes into customer support that we can see, you know, if, if the customer, uh, asks for support right within the app, that pings somebody on our team within Slack and within minutes they're getting an answer and that customer support person can drill down all the way to what, what did that person do? What was every interaction to try to help unstick them? At a macro level, we use it to say, what are people searching for? What content are they searching for that we don't have? We should go create that content. As an example, um, you know, in January, we had a ton of people searching for sous vide bacon, and we didn't have native bacon content for our ad, so we went and created that that day. It was and, all me. And it, yeah. all, all it turns out it was, it was a lot of people, but it also gives us insights in, like, uh, with things like visual doneness where people can select different degrees of doneness, we know that words like medium rare are not super helpful because medium rare actually means a different temperature to someone in San Francisco than someone in Oklahoma City. We know that like what somebody in Oklahoma City is interested in is going to be different than what somebody in Dallas is looking for and we can make recommendations appropriately. So our view of the value of data is that it allows us to continually learn from our customers and make better products and solve more interesting problems for them. And so that's every day that's what we're doing with it. And I think, you know, in the traditional world, brands, food brands never had that level of granular insight in almost real time, um, which I think is fascinating if you're a CPG brand. I think that's why these, these brands are excited about it. Um, so Nathan, maybe there's some lessons you've kind of dug into and fast, fascinating things you learned from the data you saw how people are using your products. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, you know, going back to the retail idea and the messaging idea, like, when you're in any competitive situation, you know, you're trying to sell versus your competitor, you're trying to, you know, find an audience, like, it's all about your decision loop, how fast your decision loop runs. And, and you know, seeing the response to your advertisement, seeing your POS data and things like that are, are key pieces to it. But also seeing how people use the product once it's in their house is sort of this new frontier, right? Um, you know, once a product walked out of your store back in the day, that was it. 
Um, now, uh, now we have actually a complete feedback loop. So, for example, one of the things that we saw was early on in the program, um, we had a ton of smoke detectors um, from Kida and Nest and brands like that, and we had a ton of light bulbs, right? And we started seeing this emergent use case in the data. We never, we didn't think about this ourselves, where people were saying, "Okay, if my smoke detector goes off, turn on all the lights." And it's like that makes a lot of sense, right? Like that can actually mean, you know, that's like can be the difference between life and death. If you if you can see your way out of the house if there's an emergency, and you know the downside of it is nothing because your smoke detector is not going to get many false positives. So, you know, it's this really sort of intuitive use case when you once you sort of think about it, but um, you know, not obvious. And so what we did in that situation was we decided to put together a package of light bulbs and smoke detectors, work with Home Depot to create that as a Black Friday bundle, educate the, um, the actual associates on the ground to be able to talk to people about this, how to set it up, what the value was, and, and we sold out of that bundle on, the, on that Black Friday. And I think that, that putting together that loop where you're constantly improving your offering and then actually communicating that like on the ground to the people or the methods with, by which you're selling the product is key. I mean, the cornerstone of, of selling, the cornerstone of retail is, is trust, right? And so people have to trust that your associates, you know, know what they're talking about and are, you know, sort of informed about the, the, um, the value that you're going to be able to get out of the smart home. And the same thing goes for content. The same thing goes for sort of any messaging you're doing. Uh, you know, people have to believe in, in what you're saying in order for them to be comfortable, you know, sort of, you know, spending their hard-earned cash on this solution. And there's no better way to sort of gain trust and be saying something real than to, you know, observe the data and actually, you know, model what you're doing after things that are that are happening on the ground. So the old world of me running into the wall and stubbing my toe on my bed, that we can move past that with the smart room. That's a good thing. You know, one of the things I love about uh, the houseware show is walking uh, over that hallway, uh, that kind of that, that sky bridge, and look, if, if you guys read those little signs about all the innovation that's happened over the past, since like the 1800s, you know, it's, there's talking about like uh, the Trudeau family uh, building uh, things. It's amazing. The Pyrex. So, I want to challenge you guys a little bit and ask, you know, if you're like a company doing, there's so much innovation in houseware that where products don't require a battery or have an operating system, right? So, you know, I, if you're a company that just makes bowls here or you're making some sort of houseware that isn't in the new area, should you be thinking about this future where things are connected or is this just, oh, those are the guys that things with batteries and operating systems? Chris? Um. No, you should probably not be wasting your time on like Wi-Fi wi and apps. But what I would suggest is you should be thinking about how you actually uh, build a community of people that find your products helpful and how you continually engage with them. And that's really the opportunity of the modern world is leveraging the technology available to figure out how to keep solving problems for your customers. The the other area where you know I'd be trying to innovate is is on the product creation and fulfillment and, and sort of the boring nuts and bolts of it, of saying how do I uh, increase the speed at which I can learn from my customers about what they want, create that and get that to them. I think that's actually just as important as the, the, the end experience. You know, we focus a lot on the app interface, the voice interface, the things that our customers do with our products, but it's just as important to focus on how do we make our product better, how do we get it to our customers faster, how do we reduce the risk for everybody in the supply chain to be more nimble. Um, that's really the future to me, and that's where the innovation should be. 
Carly, I mean, I think there's so many great products, which I call low-tech, or, or I don't, this isn't demeaning, called dumb, you know, <laughs> products that, like the spiralizer, right? Like, that's an amazing product, right? And that's an innovation. There's so much innovation. So when you think about, like, telling your folks that watch you on TV uh, about innovation, do, do, are you mainly focused on connected products? Or are there lots of these other products that you're trying to bring into their life that can fit into this lifestyle? I personally am very passionate about talking about solutions and that the solutions don't always have to be high-tech solutions. So uh, I saw a lot of uh, electric spiralizers this trip around the Wired and Well Hall. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know, at some point it just might not be a necessary thing. Um, I don't make that many zoodles that I might need an electronic one. And it, it, the, the, the non-electronic one sort of suits me fine. So, you know, um, I always think about uh, pencil and paper. Um, a lot of people are moving off their to-do list apps and they're going back to a notebook because it's easier, it's faster, it's better for cognition to write things down. Um, and so I don't know that... Uh, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing when technology can improve our lives, but we're talking about millions of years of evolution, um, and it's sometimes challenging yeah. for technology to outdo what we've been doing for thousands and thousands of years. So I, you know, I think that, again, you know, to your point, you want to basically have products born out of an empathy for a consumer problem and not just, um, I, I spoke to someone on the floor today who said it's the Wild West because everyone's shooting, so we're just shooting too. So everyone's got a connected <laughs> device, so we have to have a connected device too. And that is, that's not the way to the hearts and minds of consumers. Um, it, it's probably the opposite way because it's just frustrating and adds a layer of complexity to something that used to be simple. So a Wi-Fi connected bowl um, I'm not sure what the value yeah, is yeah. there. Um, there. There have been some famous silly connected products from uh, from shows past CES, um, and, and they're not there the next year because they don't make any sense for, for most people. So I think it's yeah. important to start with a problem, and, and having that community is the best way to figure it out. You can see right in front of you where the stumbling blocks are and then find solutions for them, and then people love you for it. So it's a great cycle. We're about two minutes away from when I want to start going to the audience. So if you have a question, there are microphone stands there. You can start lining up. I'm going to ask some questions. If I don't see anyone, uh, I, won't, I won't embarrass anyone and be the teacher that calls on you for not doing your homework. But if you have questions, start lining up. Um, you know, Nathan, this idea of kind of low-tech and, and products that don't have technology, I, I wonder if, um, if we get really advanced. You probably think a lot about more advanced interfaces. This idea of, like, facial recognition and kind of machine uh, vision. For those of you who don't know, like there are products that actually can recognize you and, and then build a contextual experience around it. And Is that maybe like one way in which going into the future we can uh, allow us to interact with things that aren't necessarily technical by using machines to kind of coordinate the experience and adding capabilities to those? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, you know, you're talking to a guy who made a connected egg tray, so like, you know, I've, I've made some silly connected This is the guy who made myself. the connected egg tray, everyone. Um, I like that I mean, egg tray. I mean, it, it has a purpose, and we, you know, we were trying to explore whether this was a problem that was worth solving with that, with that type of, of technology. Um, but I, I am definitely a proponent of, of, you know, 
the right solution to the right problem. And a lot of times that is a low tech um, solution. You know, I do the same thing we were talking about earlier, where the second I get in the house, I put my phone in this little lacquer box that's on the, you know, um, on our in, in our entryway, and I try to not pay attention to it. You know, I try to live without constantly being, you know, assaulted by um, by technology, even working in the technology industry. And I think that the way that Carly puts really interesting context, which is evolution, right? Like, we are going to try and fail to apply these technologies to different solutions, and the best ones are going to prevail, and the worst ones are, you know, not going to be at CES the next year. And, you know, shooting blindly is is going to be probably the ones that fail, and the people that actually, you know, apply data and use that decision loop to drive their their solutions and get more and more pointed are the people that are that are going to endure and that are going to create, you know, the next generation of iconic products. And I think that that experimenting with things like machine learning um, and experimenting with things like, you know, computer vision are it's going to take time, but it eventually will yield results. And those results will probably not be what we thought about at the outset. You know, um, when we started out, we sort of had these dreams. That we, we have a machine learning discipline in our, our company that's awesome. And when we started out, we had these, you know, dreams about being able to, to predict, you know, everything, be able to turn on the lights as you walk into different rooms and that sort of thing. And frankly, like, we can do it to a certain extent, but... Like, that's not necessarily the thing that's the, the most valuable to people. You know, what people like is, hey, can you make it so that you know when I go on vacation and turn my lights on so that, you know, it seems like I'm home and simulate, like, my normal, um, my normal usage pattern when I'm away. And so I think that, I think that it'll be those sort of unintuitive and non-obvious, like, applications that really resonate with people. And we're going to have to, as those technologies advance, continue experimenting with them to find that, that, you know, right point of, uh, of value. Yeah, it seems like the industry like watches the movies and like we learn from these and like these are the products we're going to give you and then like we observe real behavior like they didn't want to act like the Jetsons they wanted to do these things that we really do. We have a question so sir go ahead. Hello. Uh, one big hurdle that apps have had to overcome was monetizing through ads while trying not to be you know disruptive to the user. How do you see voice handling advertisement? Badly. Through Alexa, <laughs> um, I think it's a real challenge. I think Google had a, Google had a fiasco yeah. last week um, where they pushed an ad and discovered like, oh wow, people totally don't want the the ad intruding that much in their in their, in their life, and that's a big problem because Google sells ads. That's how they they make money. Amazon, you know, one of the reasons we're probably a, a bigger bet on something like Alexa is. Uh, Amazon doesn't need to use advertisements to, to monetize. They can sell. You will buy stuff through it, um, mm-hmm. and and they will make money that way, um, or other ways that you know they're still figuring out. So, you know, for the, for the big players, um, you know, I see ads as, as a big problem. But that actually trickles down even into companies at our levels. Of you're not going to be able, you know, there's an ongoing cost of maintaining an app, investing in a software team, investing in machine learning teams and data science teams. This is like crazy expensive. And so you really have to figure out, like, what are the, the future products you're going to be able to sell your customers that actually deliver value and solve real problems for them? Advertisements are, at least in the way most of us think about it, are probably not going to be the effective means of monetizing these digital services going forward. What exactly will be the solutions? I think it will be very category dependent. Yeah. That makes sense. I think we talked, we alluded at this a little bit earlier. Um, there's 
lots of fun, kind of crazy products, a little bit of shooting, maybe you're shooting yourself on the foot, like, it gets down to this, like, utility, right? So what is, what provides utility for the consumer? Is there room for air fryers with cameras on them? Because uh, those may be really fun products. Maybe those aren't going to be the next Amazon Alexa. It seems like there is fun, there's room for some gadgets. Uh, there's also, but we also are driving towards utility for the next big giant hit. Um, I mean, Nathan, you talk a little bit about that? I mean, there's room for both of those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about what your model is, right? And like, if your model can survive on, you know, a niche product, like, that's great. Like, the world, like, needs more of those types of fun products. Like, he talked about this idea of having, like, physical interfaces, you know. Like, I've seen so many interesting, you know, combinations of the sort of physical and the digital that might not be right for everyone, but for, like, a certain type of, of consumer that might really resonate. And you see the same thing in, like, musical equipment, people going more towards, like, physical equipment and not wanting to, like, menu dive in these digital mm-hmm. solutions. But it's not a huge business. You can't raise $120 million, you know, out of, you know, $1.2 billion valuation and go out and pursue that niche. You know, you have to know what your audience is and what your model is to pursue that audience. And so I think that as technology um, becomes cheaper and more accessible, you know, it's, it's much easier to create a connected product than it was even like three or four years ago, like when, when we started out. And that reduction in complexity and reduction in cost to do that will open up those niche solutions that maybe will only appeal to 1% of the population but might end up being, you know, a revolutionary product in that in that particular niche. Yeah, the industry actually has come along, right? So there's a manufacturing industry that had to learn how to do connected products, whether it's a contract manufacturer, which, you know, a lot of the, these guys work with, they had to learn how to do the software. And what, I'm, what I'm hearing from you is, they kind of got past that learning curve, which means people who are innovating can go to them, and those product cycles are now six months versus where it used to be a year or two. Yeah, I mean, our parent company is the is the second biggest CM in the world, Flex, and uh, you know they are transitioning away from this idea of just doing manufacturing into something that's called sketch to scale, which means like you can literally take an idea to Flex that's you know sketched out on paper and they'll be able to do everything including the connected portion of it and i think that that is definitely the way that we're going you see the same thing with accelerators like highway one and people like that where you can really get to market quickly and and cost effectively with this type of product you know yesterday i talked about the smart kitchen uh on my on my talk and i talked about how it's more than just uh connected products uh it's this kind of 10-year cycle uh, where we're going to see a, uh, you know, maybe a reinvention of, of the kitchen, a lot of different new techniques coming. Uh, you, you know, Chris, you, you're working in this world where you're taking what was a professional technique, sous vide, and it was democratized a little bit through these sous vide circulators. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how, you know, I don't know if this is a, everyone in the, in the U.S. is going to be using this. It doesn't seem like that would happen. But talk a little bit about how you think the kitchen could change. And maybe dis- feel free to disagree with me that everyone will have a pot, a kettle, and a sous vide machine, how do you think the kitchen will change over the next 10 years as technology enables innovation? Um, so, you know, take predictions for what they're worth, which is not much, but, you know, the, the, the broad view is I personally do see sous vide as something that has the staying power to go mainstream. Probably not in exactly the current incarnation of, of the technology, but there's a lot of parallels to, say, the microwave, where we would have been sitting here in 1973 saying, well, you know, maybe maybe a few tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people would be having having microwaves, and yet over the next 30 years, you know, they've penetrated just about every market to completion. Um, 
you know, the interesting thing is what made microwave successful was the emergence of ready meals, the application for the microwave. I don't see that kind of, of, of uh, uh, technology um, happening again. There, we're not going to invent a ton of new ways to heat food. What I think we will see in the invention uh, of the future kitchen is the role of digital services uh, in the kitchen. And so those people who can develop products that can provide meaningful digital services that people use over and over, they're going to be really at the forefront of where the kitchen goes. The, you know, the kitchen's not going to be invented, reinvented by new hardware, per se. It's going to be reinvented by what types of services can you provide a cook that are meaningful to them, where they use them day in and day out. It just turns out that it's helpful if you're trying to do the software and the services to have a, a, a physical piece of hardware that can put that into action and really deliver on the promise. By the way, you guys, you have six minutes. You have questions. You can also tackle these guys. Don't tackle them. Just come up and nicely tap Definitely. on the shoulder when we're done here tackle. and ask for a business card. Uh, you mentioned digital services, Chris. I mean, one of the things I think is interesting, there's companies like August. Mm -hmm. They make smartwatches. They're working uh, with companies like Sears or 1-800-Flowers to do concierge services. And you start to think about this. Think about this. You know, when I'm away from home, um, I may want a delivery man or like a cleaning person or someone to come and walk my dog and I never had technology to do that before. You know, I go, I stay a lot at Airbnb and I just love the arrival of the smart locks now because when you go to Airbnb, you don't have to arrange to meet someone uh, at an awkward time to get a key. Now they just, they give you the last four digits of your, of your phone number become the code. So I do think we're going to see this, uh, unleashing of innovation around services connected to smart hardware. Nathan, talk a little bit about that. I'm sure you guys are having some of these conversations with service providers, whether it's Airbnb or like, uh, whoever is are these conversations happening right now yeah definitely I mean can't really talk about the specifics but there is stuff brewing to basically help you you know imagine not having to stay home from work to you know have the plumber come imagine having you know a house cleaning service that works around you and you never have to work about worry about access or you know the security of someone coming into your house that's certainly something we're thinking about. And I think that we just have, you know, like you mentioned Sears. We now think of Sears as like the iconic brick and mortar, you know, brand, but it used to be a catalog. You know, food delivery used to be, oh, I'm going to have a barrel of molasses that's going to, you know, like last me a year. And now it's like we buy in smaller portions. Like that stuff evolves and it evolves quickly. And I think that, that you know, the, the retail brands that are going to survive are the people that are me thinking about making partnerships and, and making these hardware service integrations that really move the ball forward in that respect. Let's see what we have there. Oh, question, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this has been great, really interesting. Um, I'm curious about robotics. We seem to be hearing more and more uh, about uh, the possibilities there. Sort of beyond forgetting um, robotic vacuums, are there any applications that you see coming down the, the pike that you're excited about? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's one really cool use case for um, for drones and security, you know, we're starting to see people talk about uh, the idea of, you know, instead of having like 50 cameras around your house, maybe have this sort of like outdoor drone that is part of your security system that, you know, you see in the sensors that there's something going on. And then that plays into obviously like the machine learning part of it. And it's really fun to think about. I think that I think that it will happen. It's only a matter of time. Can it aim like paintballs yeah, at a potential exactly. yeah. intruder? We're going to be dark, so deaf if drones are circling around. That's yeah. really true. But, you know, it's always, a, you know, the thing that we're laughing about 10 years in advance, like 10 years later, yeah. like that's going to, you know, ADT is going to have their little ADT drone. That... <laughs> yeah, I think Alarm.com actually has done integration with a drone manufacturer. So Alarm.com is one of these big service, uh, security as a service providers. 
So they're already thinking about that, basically. So what about robotics in the kitchen? Are, are you seeing you see that happening? Um, not any time. I mean, they already have happened. I mean, your dishwasher is a robot. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. But in in terms of what people think of as robots in the kitchen, um, personally, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about that. Just looking at the economics of it and the state of robotic technology, like, super awesome for manufacturing, not so great for like doing a lot of the uh, the human aspects of recreating a meal. And even if you designed a robot that could do that. It's going to be really expensive. So where I tend to see that is going to be in large-scale catering where the capital costs are going to make sense. But like the idea of we're going to have a robot that stands there and makes me an omelet, that's going to be a really expensive omelet. <laughs> okay. And it can only make the one omelet. It'll make the one omelet. It's going to be so. really, really confused if the egg tray gets moved. <laughs> I am, um, you know, just to add on to that, I am also a little bit unsure about how I feel about all the assisted cooking stuff that's happening. I, I, one thing I really like about Juul is that I'm right there in the middle of it. It's no different than using a saute pan or any other tool in the kitchen. But when, um, when a product is basically saying, you go sit over there and we're going to make your dinner for you, um, I feel like I've lost something. Yeah. Um, and so there's something that makes my life easier in the kitchen. That's great. Or maybe even faster in the kitchen. But if it takes the kitchen away, I think as humans, we lose something. Um, and, and certainly as providers of food for other people, I think that's such a joyous, important thing. Um, so, uh, you know, help is good, and then too much help feels alienating and weird to me. So I think there's a real balance. And then some people might be like, yes, please, make my dinner. I've got better things to do. But I think as a, as a human race, uh, it's a fine line. Chris, I mean, what do you think of that? Yes, I mean, look, as somebody who, who started out as a chef, you know, when sous vide first started really uh, taking over fine dining restaurants, there was a real backlash in like mm. 2002, 2003 with chefs saying, oh, it descales the cooking. And it was like, you know, there's no, you know, Alice Waters famously said, there's no soul in sous vide. And it's like, I have no idea what's so soulful about being a bad human thermometer. You know, the, the advantage of sous vide cooking was that it actually guaranteed that like the meat or the seafood was not going to be overcooked so that you could concentrate as a chef on all the other things that go into making a great meal. The problems we were trying to solve with for our community were very much the same. Of We know there's a lot of fear of, oh, I'm not a very good cook uh, with seafood, so I don't cook seafood very much. If we could take that fear away so that people know they're going to get a great piece of seafood and they can focus on the other aspects of making it, getting a, a good meal, whether it's a fancy meal or whether it's just getting dinner on the table when you get home, you know, that's a problem that a lot of people want to solve. I mean, about 70% of the American households actually do claim to enjoy some level of cooking. Otherwise, this whole show wouldn't exist. Um, so, you know, there's this weird, we're not in Silicon Valley, but there is this weird ethos in Silicon Valley that the whole idea is to, like, de-skill it and, like, you don't have to cook ever again. I don't think that's what people are looking for. I think they're looking for, I want to cook more, but I want the food to be good. Like, I don't want sucky food. I want delicious food, and I want it to be relatively painless to do. Yeah, I, I mean, there's nothing worse than, because I do love chopping my onions and I do love chopping my fresh herbs and I do love getting everything ready and then to just burn it all yeah. is just the worst waste of time. Like it's my pleasure to spend that time if the success rate is high. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm looking for is is the insurance that the success rate is high and I can be proud of what I put on the table. Yeah, and I think I found technologies actually pulled me more into the kitchen and yeah, mm -hmm. I've watched my kids learn all these skills through YouTube and I actually learn a lot from watching videos, 
Um, I feel like I've learned how to do things. And, like, uh, you know, there might be, like, I, I think there's, like, a dial you can turn down as you learn the skills yourself. You can maybe turn it down and kind of take over more of that. So I think there is some benefit from learning as these products come connected. There's visual guidance. So I think it's interesting. Guys, we're actually out of time. There's no more questions. Uh, why don't you guys give these guys a big round of applause? Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael.